So if you want to open up your Bible to Romans 9, we're going to be in verses 14 to 29. Man, is that a lot of verses. That's 16 verses to cover in about 45 minutes. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to just start and we're going to fly. And there is a lot of controversy in these verses. Uh, Controversy would be putting it very, very mildly. Uh, There's a lot of outrage in these verses. And so we're going to treat them with gentleness and respect and seek to just be faithful to the Bible. Okay, so let's start by thinking of the main theme. The main theme here is, is God unjust? That's one of the main questions asked here. Is God unjust? And the reason this is asked is because Paul brings up uh, a question. He says, who can resist his will? And that's a good question. And the answer is no one. And if that's the case, then is there injustice in God for being sovereign over all creation and especially over choosing who and whom will not belong to him? Is God unjust for doing this? And so this is one of the main questions asked here in this section. And so that's the title of the sermon. What we're going to do is we're going to read through the entire 14 to 29, and then we're going to go section by section and break it down. So let's do that together. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says to Hosea, or in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. A lot there. So what we're going to do is we're just going to go verse by verse by verse. We're going to break it down. And I'm going to try to show you how God being sovereign, being in control, has the freedom to do what he wants with his creation. And by him doing what he wills with his creation is not unjust, but rather he is the definition of justice. Let's start with verse 14. What shall we say then? Now remember, last week we ended with Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You remember that in verse 13? And so him saying that 
He anticipates what the readers or hearers of this letter will say. That means that God is unjust. And so he says, what shall we say then? What should, how should we respond to that, that Jacob I love, but Esau I hated? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, is God wrong for choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau? Is he wrong? Paul's answer, by no means. The strongest no, no, no he could give. And I just want to give a logical argument uh, that Paul's not making, but I think it just makes sense. Friends, we only have what is called justice if there is a higher law than our own ideas of what is right and wrong. Because if we determine for ourselves what is right and wrong, then what about the person who says this is right and another person says that very thing is wrong? If we don't have a standard outside of ourselves that's bigger than ourselves, then there's no way to actually say what is right and wrong. And then I want to argue further that it's not the government and the laws that are upon us as citizens of the United States uh, that are the moral right and wrong, because some of our laws or some of what's legal is certainly wrong in God's eyes and will be punished by him. Pornography is legal. Abortion is legal. There's many legal things that you can do as a citizen, but God will punish you for it unless Jesus is punished in your place. Now, how do we know that pornography is wrong, that adultery is wrong? that fornication is wrong or sexual immorality as the ESV translates it. How do we know that that's wrong? Because many in our culture will say, no, that is not wrong. And how dare you infringe on people's freedom? What are we to say? Well, we have a higher law given to us by the highest being, God himself. So Christians appeal to the highest court in the universe, which is God himself, listen, who defines what is right and wrong. We do not get to define what is right and wrong for us, nor does any system of government, nor does any individual who has power. God alone says what is right and wrong. And where do we find those standards? The Bible. The Bible alone gives us the standards. And so, can God be unjust? Well, not if he's the definition of justice. Whose court would God be tried in? Yours? The court of human opinion? Maybe we should take a poll. God will not be judged by anyone because there is no higher authority, friends. And so we only know right and wrong because God has graciously made us in his image. He has given us a conscience. And everyone knows right and wrong because as Romans 2 explains, the law is written on our hearts. Okay, now I've taken too much time to argue this. So Paul just says, by no means, but I gave you a little more. Now he's going to shift the idea from justice to mercy. Listen, it's not about justice, Paul says. You need mercy. Let's talk about mercy. And so he says in verse 15, for he says, God, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, this is taken from Exodus 33, 18 to 20, which we'll look at in just a second here. But here's the context. Okay? The golden calf incident has just occurred. And if you remember, as a result of the golden calf incident, the Levites said, we are for the Lord. And then Moses said, I want you Levites to kill everyone who has worshiped this golden calf, whether it's your son, your daughter, your brother, your father, you wipe them out. And so the Levites with their swords kill their own family members and their own brothers. 3,000 men fell that day. We don't know how many women and children. Okay, God judged them. And then after that, he sent a plague to kill more people. Do you know what that was? That was called judgment. Does God have a right to judge people? Does God have a right to judge his people who were the Jews? He's God, exactly. Enough said, right? Okay, but we have to do a little better than that to kind of persuade people. 
God, if he is God and he determines right and wrong, then the, if the, one of the first commandments is you shall have no other gods before me and you violate that law, does he have a right to punish you for violating one of the first laws that he gives? The second is like it. You shall have no images. And as Moses is on the mountain receiving these very laws, they're being violated in the camp. And so God tells Moses to leave Sinai because Mount Sinai is where the law was given. And he says, I can't go with you. He says, Moses, if I go with you, I will wipe out all these people. I cannot go with you. I will send an angel, one of my angels, I'll send an angel before you to clear the way, but I cannot go with you. God can't tolerate sin. And he's basically had it with his people at this point. You know, at one point, God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to start over with you. You're going to be my new Abraham. And Moses appeals to God and says, what will the other nations think if you wipe out your people? They'll say that you failed. And so he appeals to God's glory and reputation and name. And he intercedes for the people, much like Jesus intercedes for sinners and wicked, rebellious people like us. And so this is, this is the context. Moses intercedes and says, you have to go with us. You must go with us. And God says, all right, I'll go because of you, Moses, because I know your name and you know me. And then Moses boldly says, show me your glory. It's that context. And so in that context, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. There's our quote. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. Now listen, we, we domesticate God, and so me even telling this story, which is basically just recounting what the Scripture says clearly, we're kind of offended. We're like, how could God do that? But see, we live in sin, we have sin living in us, and we live in a culture that is super corrupt. And God lives in a realm without sin. He's undefiled and he hates it and he can't stand darkness and darkness can't be in his presence. That's the difference. Because we're swimming in a culture of filth, God swims in unapproachable light. He is so other than us, which means holy. We are so unholy that when we even hear these stories, we kind of get offended like, God, how could you? We do kind of feel like God is unjust, right? But see, we're the problem, not God. Okay, I, I want to say more, but we will be here for three hours if I don't progress through these verses, okay? And so he says, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Now, I want to ask you a question. What does the word mercy mean? It means not getting what you deserve. What does that mean? That means that everybody is in need of mercy. And those who get mercy don't get what they deserve, which would be justice. You see, if God is holy, righteous, and good, then he must punish sin. If he doesn't, then he's not good, he's not holy, and he's not righteous. So what we might proclaim is, God, you're unjust, the very opposite is true. He has to punish people, and the punishment against an infinite God is an infinite punishment. And so that he doesn't punish some and yet saves them and loves them, forgives them and adopts them, brings them into a new heavens and a new earth is purely mercy. 
And what Paul is appealing to, he says, okay, let's, let's not talk about justice here. Let's talk about mercy. And by the way, God is sovereign, and so he gets to show mercy on whom he wants to. No one is obligated to receive mercy. And you can't earn it. You can't do anything to get it. It must be bestowed upon you by God. That's the only way you get it. And so he appeals to this text from Exodus. And and he says, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. If someone is receiving compassion, again, that means they must be in need of it. Compassion means you have this feeling for someone's situation and you will to get involved. You, You actually take action to help them out of their situation. And so if God is showing compassion, that means we're in a place where we need it. And God, it's his prerogative to be compassionate to whom he wants and to not be compassionate to others if he doesn't want to. And see, here's our problem. We feel like he should have mercy on everyone and we feel like he should have compassion on everyone the same. We want equal outcome. That's what we want. So we feel like if we don't have equal outcome, there's injustice. So let me ask you a question. This is, it's not apples to apples, okay? But it'll help you. Let's say that you lent three friends $200, okay? And these, all these friends said, I will pay you back, I promise. And you say, okay, no problem. Now, one of the friends, you know, is in a hard place. And so they're struggling to pay you back. It's two months past due. And you're like, you know what, bro? I love you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'll absorb the debt. But then you collected the debt from the other two. Did you do any wrong to the two people that you collected the debt from? You did no wrong to them. But you showed compassion and mercy on the one whom you forgave the debt. Friends, that's the picture here. We all owe God an infinite debt for our sin. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is the cancellation of that debt. And God is free to cancel the debt to whom he wills. And he is also free to make people pay the debt. And he does no injustice to the ones that have to pay. That's what's going on here. Okay, that's what's going on here. And so, let's not talk about justice, let's talk about mercy, Paul says. I can show mercy and compassion to whom I want because I am God. Shai Lin is an is a, is a old friend of mine, he's a hip-hopper, and uh, he wrote an album uh, called The Atonement. It's one of the most theologically rich albums I've ever encountered in my life. And in a song called In Adam All Die, he says this, God is not subject to human notions of fairness. Besides, when it comes to God's glory, most could care less. And you see, that's the problem. We all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. In other words, we could care less to glorify God and honor Him. And that's the very thing that we were made for. And so we're off purpose for being created but yet we could care less. Let's talk about reality for a second. Are you keeping your heart beating right now? Whose oxygen are you breathing? Who gives you the energy that your body is using to hear me and your brain somehow with all those neurons are translating it into sense? You actually understand what I'm saying? Makes sense? Friends, all this is God, and it's on loan to us. And yet, I'm going to be blunt here, every day, unbelievers middle finger God and say, keep giving me all your gifts. You'd be mad too. And friends, you were the one doing that as well before you were forgiven. 
So let's talk about mercy. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about an unpayable debt that God himself paid. Okay? Now I do have to move on because we have 16 verses to cover. A lot of verses. So let's go to 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. It's not about people and their works and efforts. It's not about you. It's not about me. But it's on God who has mercy. So this is the clearest place in all the Bible where we get what's called unconditional election. It has nothing to do with you or me, our work, our will, our trying. It's all God and it's all mercy and it's all grace. Unconditional means there's no condition in the object of mercy and grace. You're the object of mercy and grace. It's not about what you do or don't do or did or will do in the future. It's about God who shows mercy. Verse 17, he's going to pile on another argument here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now you remember the story with Pharaoh in the Exodus, right? Pharaoh is um, worshiped as a God. He supposedly embodies Ra, the chief of the Egyptian gods. And he is going to go toe-to-toe with Yahweh. Who is this God? I will not let his people go into the wilderness and worship him. And so he, he basically says, who is this God to me? And we, having a biblical perspective, say, man, that's a bad thing to say. That's, that's a terrible choice. And so God says, all right, I will show you who I am and what kind of power I have. And it's plague after plague after plague after plague after plague. And then the context here is, um, I believe it's the seventh plague. And God uh, says this. He says, for by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. What does that mean? Pharaoh, by now, I could have wiped you all out. There'd be nothing of you left. No more Egyptians to even procreate and keep the ethnicity going. So that he didn't, what does that mean? Mercy, exactly. Grace, not justice. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. In other words, Pharaoh, you you realize you came to power for this very moment that I might show the nations and future generations my glory and my power. Now, God's purpose for this Pharaoh being raised up was that he might resist God's plea over and over, let my people go into the wilderness that they may worship me. This is the reason I raised you up, Pharaoh, so that you would resist me. And we have some difficulty here because Pharaoh hardens his heart against God. And then we have some texts that say, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen to God. And that's where Paul goes next in Romans. He says, for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. He said, okay, you want, you want to go toe to toe with me? Let's do this. Realize I could have wiped you out by now but you are still exalting yourself. And so I'm going to continue to show my power and my glory to you, and it will be multiplied and proclaimed throughout the earth and for every generation. And here we are in 2022 talking about it. And that was the purpose that God raised him up. And so Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills 
and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, the question of hardening, friends, brings up a very uncomfortable theological topic. It's called, do you know what it's called? Reprobation. You heard that word? Reprobates? It's the opposite coin of positive election. In other words, it's those whom God doesn't elect to salvation. And here, Paul is using Pharaoh as an example of this other side of the positive coin. Pharaoh is a reprobate, and God hardens his heart. So we have to wrestle with this, yes? Okay, so let's do that. How specifically does God harden the heart? We're not told. That he does? Yes. I think it's very important that we wrestle with how does God harden the heart. We know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because... The Exodus story says he does. Paul brings it up here. He has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So the how is what we're going to talk about for just a minute. Okay. Repeatedly in the Exodus account, God relents from the plagues instead of completely wiping out Pharaoh and his people. And so what would you call that? Mercy. This is amazing. And so what hardens Pharaoh's heart time and time again is literally the mercy of God. Because when he's feeling the pressure, he says, all right, all right, I'll let them go. And then God says, or Moses, God through Moses says, all right. And then as soon as the plague dies down, he's back in his position, obstinate, hard. I will not let them go. Isn't that interesting? So God can actually harden people's heart by showing them grace and mercy. By not giving them what they deserve. With temporal judgment. Let me ask you a question. Is it not true, if you're a true believer, that you call out to God or feel most close to Him or you draw near when things are really hard? Is that not the case? We seek hard after God when life is squashing us. And so it is with Pharaoh in the story. God is squashing Pharaoh with the plagues. And he says, okay, okay, I relent. I repent. I'll let them go. Okay. He relents, mercy, grace. And what happens? Pharaoh hardens his heart again. And so it is an active mercying that hardens Pharaoh's heart here. So here's what we need to think about God and, and reprobates, okay? God doesn't need to put fresh evil into people's hearts so that they might reject him. Romans 3 already said that no one seeks after God. No one pursues him. Everyone is running away from him. And so Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28 says, so what does God do? As judgment, he gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over to what? To their free will. He said, all right, I'm going to give you over as judgment to what you most want. Darkness, sin, depravity, a debased mind. That's Romans 1. And so, friends, if God gives us our freedom, it turns into a judgment because we will not come to Him. And so God must intervene. He comes into the darkness, reaches in, and pulls us out of the darkness. That's called calling. God calls you from the darkness and you must come effectual calling, irresistible grace. You resist, you resist, you resist until the moment that God says, no more resisting. And you can't resist any longer. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit makes you alive and you breathe belief 
And you see for the first time the light. But if God doesn't reach into the darkness as you're running away from Him, if He lets you keep running, friends, you will run right to hell. This is the mercy of God. And friends, God doesn't have to reach into the darkness to pull any of us out. So when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We should understand in light of what we're talking about now that this grace really is amazing. Remember, it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Why? So that no one can boast. If it's grace, there's no boasting. If it's all mercy, 100%, there's nothing we can claim for our own glory. All praise be to God alone, 100%. So I think some of you should be singing louder when we sing these songs. I mean, that's, that could be a great application point for, let's sing, and I better hear you if you're a Christian. Amen? All right. Good. Excellent. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This verse 18 is just a, a plain declaration of God's sovereignty and God's will and his freedom of will. God is free in his will. All right, now, let's talk about verse 19. So Paul then, man, I got 13 minutes left. This is crazy. So Paul says, you will say to me then, he anticipates an argument. All right, I, I got this paragraph. I know what you're going to say. Perhaps he even heard this argument as he was teaching these things in various cities and various churches. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? All right, Paul, I understand, I understand your argument. If no one can resist God's will, then how are we to be blamed? How does he still find fault? Now, this is an interesting tension point, Okay. If you're going to be a biblical Christian, you must be willing to embrace what's called paradox or tension. Both words are good. Okay? There is tension throughout the entire Bible surrounding God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It is not a contradiction. It is a paradox. So here, here's another paradox that's just left out in the open by Luke. Both are true, but... I'd, I'd love to show it to you. So Luke wrote Acts, you know that. And the apostles in the church are praying in response to persecution. And they say in their prayer, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, the puppet king of the Romans, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, along with the Gentiles, the Romans, who helped get him on the cross, and the people of Israel, those yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Now, they're responsible, but check this out, verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, on Judgment Day, not Herod, not Pilate, not any of those Gentiles, and not any of those Israelites can point to this verse and say, see, it was predestined to take place, therefore, I'm not to be blamed. No. You see, they did what they wanted to do. They carried out their highest desire. And God allowed them to do so because it was his predetermined plan that they do so. Yet God didn't force any of them against their will to do what they didn't want to do. They wanted to crucify Jesus. Pilate didn't want to, but he had that struggle. He didn't want to lose his position. He didn't want to riot. He, so he thought it better that he would die. Even his wife was like, look, I had a dream about this guy. Don't do it. Don't do it. He didn't even listen to his wife. We'll get there when Easter rolls around, okay? And so not Herod, not Pilate, not any of the Roman Gentiles, and not any of the people of Israel can say, look, God, you predestined this to take place. Therefore, I'm not responsible. No, both are true. 
They were 100% responsible for their free decisions, and God had 100% predetermined that this take place before the foundation of the world. And if you are curious about that, how could Jesus be called the lamb slain before the foundation of the world if this wasn't in the plan? We need sin to have a lamb slain for sin, And so therefore, sin was in the picture before anything was even created. A savior was in the picture before anything was even created. Pharaoh and the Exodus were in the picture before anything was created. And God, in his unapproachable light and brilliance, is outside of time. And so this is another thing that's impossible for us to hold on to. How can God be 100% sovereign and yet all of history play out like a line And yet all these people are making their own choices that they're going to be held accountable for? How is that possible? Friends, it's called tension, and you have to be comfortable with it if you're going to be a biblical Christian. Because you'll find some verses that make it like everything's on us. Then you'll find some verses that looks like everything's on God. Then you'll find some verses like this that say, no, both are true. And that's the truth. Both are true. We don't understand how a 100% free decision could be predetermined. But God understands. Maybe the quantum physicists will figure this out. Anyway. But who are you, oh man? So Paul, Paul just says, all right, here's my answer to that question. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? <laughs> Paul basically says, listen, who are you to charge God with any wrong. In other words, shut your mouth. You have no idea who you're talking to. So rather than Paul reasoning and being persuasive, he's just like, yo, be careful. Be careful. Why does God still find fault? It's not my fault. Who could resist his will? Be careful talking to God that way. No one in their right mind slaps a hungry lion in the face. Oh, and by the way, God created all the hungry lions and feeds them all, the psalmist says. Don't slap God in the face with your notions of fairness and human justice from a fallen perspective. It's basically what Paul's saying. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, can the creature say to the creator, how dare you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? So God is pictured as at the potting wheel, we're the lump of clay. He's fashioning us and molding us as he wants to. And then I love how verse 21, Paul puts this. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? That's important. So highlight that in your Bible. Same lump. What that means is we are all this mass of fallen humanity. Because remember what we talked about last week. In order for him to predestine us for salvation, that means we need saved from something. There is no predestining for salvation if you don't need saved. That means we're this big lump of fallen humanity resisting God, running away from him. That's the lump. And so out of that lump, fallen, resistant, hard-hearted humanity, out of that lump, God makes one vessel for honorable use, Christian. And one, another, for dishonorable use, non-Christian. Yeah, that feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? That he makes them for a dishonorable use. But that's what it says. What if God, now he gets really clear and really pointed in 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, so God wants to display his attribute of wrath, but you need something to display your wrath against and toward. So what if God wants to display his wrath and make known his power, like in the case of the 10 plagues? has endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, that sounds harsh, but listen the way, listen the way it says it. It says, they are prepared, but they are, look at this, endured with much patience. What does that mean? So if you're a vessel, you're, you're a pot or you're a cup. You're something that you put something into. The picture here is God makes people cups to pour mercy into or cups to pour wrath into. And he's the one shaping them this way. But the ones that are made for wrath are endured with great patience. What does that mean? Think of Pharaoh. He was the illustration just a few verses ago. By now, I could have wiped you off the face of the earth with your resistance and arrogance. And he endures with him over and over and over. Did you know that Romans 2 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? How kind is God to every single person that exists? He causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. His sun shines on the just and the unjust. He gives every single person what's called common grace. He casts his gifts across all humanity without them loving him or not. Some of the greatest musicians on the planet hate God. Where'd they get the gift? Some of the greatest artists on the planet can't stand God and use their artistic abilities to seek to disprove his existence. Think of the new atheists, Dawkins, brilliant, fantastic writer, writes books like The God Delusion, or Hitchens, God is not great. Yet the very gifts they're using to write these were given by God and sustained by him. And he's like, I'll let you write that book and publish it and make millions. I'll be patient. Your day is coming, Hitchens. And by the way, sadly, he did pass away recently. But did you know that Hitchens actually went on a debate tour with Doug Wilson and heard the gospel over and over and over in city after city after city? And yet he used his brilliant intellect to try to disprove the gospel. And so was God showing mercy by giving him the gospel over and over and over? He was. You see, God, even in his kindness, meant to lead people to repentance, yet they still stiff arm him like a running back. No, 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 spin move, no. Get away from me, God. Until one day he says, enough resisting. You're my daughter now. You're my son now. This is the mercy and grace of God, friends. In order, verse 23, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. All right, so 23 says, we're actually the reason, the vessels of mercy, the Christians, so that we would understand the riches of his glory. He endures with patience the vessels of wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Friends, do you realize, and this is hard, but glory is coming for us such that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. And I think C.S. Lewis has it right in The Great Divorce. Now, it's fiction. I'm not saying it's, it's a theology book. It's not. It's a fiction, creative book. But his view of hell is God allows the sins and the choice sins of people to just keep playing out and the destruction and devastation of it to keep multiplying. And that's what hell is. In fact, in one point, he says that this grumbling person continues to grumble and just increases and multiplies until the grumbling is indistinguishable from the person. They become a grumble. That sounds like hell to me. And yet, for the vessels of mercy, we get to live in paradise, ever-increasing forever. Why? Because God is merciful. It has nothing to do with anything you could do, have done, or will do. Just because He wants to. Just because He wants to show mercy and grace on you. Prepared for glory. Verse 24 says, Even us... 
whom he has called. There's the called. Us, whom he's called. Not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. Now you remember, what are we talking about large picture here in Romans 9? Has God's word failed because the, most of the Jewish people are not believing in the Jewish Messiah? Has, have the promises of God failed? And the answer was no. Why? Because not all Israel is Israel. Only those who are chosen out of the larger Israel are actually true Israel. That's his argument here. And those are the called of verse 23. But it's not just Jewish people, praise God. It's us in this room who are not Jewish. We too whom God has called. We get mercy. We get grace. So here's the, here's the Potter verse real quick. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? <laughs> I wanted handles, man. <laughs> all right. So, I, all right, listen, we're going to go 10 minutes over. Is that cool? Yeah. All right, thank you. You guys can hang in there for another 10 minutes. That's what I'm talking about. All right, praise God. Matt's like, I'm out. <laughs> Love you, Matt. <laughs> all right, so what, what I want to argue real quick is this. God in hell... Or, or punishing sin will never, will never do anyone wrong. Can I have a few minutes to argue that? All right, so in Luke 12, we have this parable of a servant over servants. Okay? And the context is the master's going to come back, and it would be good for the master to find the one servant whom he put in charge of everyone doing what he's supposed to do. That's the context. But this points to a greater reality of judgment day. And so, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, his revealed will, we could say if we're talking judgment day, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know, he was less familiar with God's revealed will, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, we talked about this in Romans 2. If you want to go back and look at Romans 2, we talked about what about the people who've never heard about Jesus? This text applies. If they've never heard, they will be judged according to that never hearing. And their sentence will be much lighter than, say, the Christian kid who grew up in church, and rejected Jesus. That's the sad reality. Because they have all this revelation, and yet they still reject. That's dangerous, friends, who, who are parents. It's dangerous kids in here who don't take serious the things of God. Here's another one. Matthew eleven twenty to 24. Jesus is denouncing the cities that he did most of his miracles. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So he reveals himself most clearly with his miracles. They refuse to repent. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment. More bearable? That means lesser punishment? for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works, were, mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, you remember Sodom, right? It would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, there's something hidden here that once you see it, you'll be like, oh, snap. What's here is called God's contingent knowledge. 
God's contingent knowledge, meaning he knows all things, even things that would have been under different circumstances. Because he says, if this would have happened, then this would have happened. But let's be clear, it didn't happen. Yet he has knowledge of what would have happened under different circumstances. Therefore, on Judgment Day, friends, no one will be able to say to God, well, if you would have just did this, I would have did this. He would have said, no. No, I know exactly what you would have done. This is what you would have done. And so, listen, friends, he takes into account all variables of could have into Judgment Day. That's what this says. It will be more tolerable on Sodom and Gomorrah or for Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum taking into account what would have been under different circumstances. Friends, no one on Judgment Day is going to get anything but justice. And the most clear sense of justice that could ever be given. Because who has contingent knowledge but God? And only God knows what people truly deserve as punishment. And so these two verses, I think, at least help us to see, like, okay, the people whom he passes over, We say reprobates. He gives them justice, but the justice he gives them will be 100% perfect, even according to things that would have been under different circumstances. And you say, that doesn't make me feel better. It's okay. It's still true. It makes me feel better to think, okay, God's justice will be meted out perfectly. Now, those of you who've experienced injustice and people got away with it, don't you want those wrongs to be righted? So listen, if they're not Christian, they will be. Justice will be served. And then what if they're Christian? Justice was served by God himself. Jesus Christ, under the hand of God's just wrath and punishment, received what all the vessels of mercy should have received. So that poured into us is just love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, cancellation of debt. Adoption. I just did the negative ones. Adoption, uh, inheritance, new heavens, new earth, new family. We could go on and on. And so let's just burn through this. Whoops. Whoops, sorry about that. I'm getting too excited. As indeed he says to Hosea, you remember the prophet Hosea, he was told to take a prostitute as his wife to picture uh, God taking adulterous Israel as his wife. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what's going on here is... uh, Paul is taking from Hosea, and he's picturing that the Gentiles are also included with the people of Israel who are the Israel within the Israel. You remember, not all Israel is Israel, but only those whom he chooses. Well, in that is also the Gentiles. That's us. We are the not God's people. Those who are not my people, Gentiles. In Hosea, it has a different context, and I'll get to that in a second. But in Paul's use of it here in Romans, he's saying Gentiles were not God's people. Not Romans, not Americans, not American Indians, not Chinese, none of them. Only Jewish people were his people. And so he says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. They are going to be my people. And her who was not beloved... I will call my beloved. Gentiles at one time were not the ones who received the love of God in a salvific sense, but they will be. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Here's Doug Moo. He says, the not my people of Hosea, it's from Hosea 1.10 and 2.23, are the northern tribes of Israel. Paul, reading the prophecy in light of the Abrahamic promises, Okay? Through you, all the nations will be blessed. Which Paul says in Galatians is God preaching the gospel to Abraham in advance. Amazing. So seen through the Abrahamic promises, understands this phrase to include Gentiles as well. That's deep. And Paul's probably one of the most deep 
There was. <laughs> Period. Paul could hang in there with Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and probably take them all with his right hand. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Again, a reference to Abraham. Because you remember, Abraham, look at the stars, count them. So shall your offspring be. Your offspring will be as much as the sand on the seashore. Pointing to who? Gentiles. Gentiles, not just Jews, not just physical descendants from Abraham, but Gentiles. So, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, and we who have the faith of Abraham are the true Israel, according to Galatians 3, only a remnant of them will be saved. Now, here's his argument from Isaiah. God always had a smaller group of true sons and daughters inside this larger sons and daughters. Remember out of Israel I called my son? Referencing the Jewish people. Well, there were true sons inside of that son. There were true daughters inside of that daughter. Or there was a true Israel inside of the larger Israel. And this is what he's saying here. The remnant, it means a small amount. Do you ever buy a carpet remnant? What is it? It's a small piece of the whole that's left over. And so you buy it at a discounted rate. Well, there's a remnant, a small amount of people out of the larger whole. God always keeps for himself a small amount, even if the whole is rejecting him. Again, back to the major context, there is a small amount of believing Jews in the first century that are his true people, even if the majority of Jews are rejecting Jesus. See what he's doing? And he's quoting Isaiah, seeing this being fulfilled. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What happened to those two cities? They don't exist anymore. They're gone. All the peoples wiped out. Judgment. And so if God, remember the Lord of hosts, that's God, if he had not left us an offspring, a small remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, so we're done. We made it through. You guys hung in there. One verse to apply and we're out. All right, here it is. How do we know if we are the elect of God? I mean, that's a good question. Well, there's two answers, at least that I know of biblically. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. And he has this long list, but I knew it would take me a half hour to unpack that verse, so I left it out. It's in 1 Peter 1. You can go do it yourself. But this one's smaller. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica this. Listen to this. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We pray for you Thessalonians all the time. Remembering before God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse four. You ready? How do I know if I'm the elect of God? How do I know if I'm a vessel of mercy? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Wait a minute. How do you know that, Paul? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do I know if I'm chosen of God? Because the gospel doesn't land on you just as news. No, it lands on you with the Holy Spirit and with power and with full conviction. And you say, yes, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus, save me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And the gospel lands on you with power and you believe. Friends, you can know that you're chosen of God if you are believing in Jesus today for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you're not today, I want to encourage you. You need to do that. Don't wait another day. Put your hope, trust, faith, give your allegiance over to Jesus. He is the only Savior. He is the only way to God's good favor. And when you take that step of belief and trust in Him, the paradox is 
It was the plan all along. But you have to exercise the faith and the belief. You must trust Him. God will not trust Himself for you. You must do it. And so don't delay. And then secondly, we have the great privilege of sharing this good news and telling anyone and everyone, if you will believe, God will save you. And if they believe, what does that mean? They were the chosen of God. But yet, we tell everyone and anyone, believe. And if someone's not believing right now and we really want them to, we should pray for them and we should keep sharing the gospel because if they're alive, there's hope. I know of many deathbed conversions and I believe they were real. And so you don't know until a person takes their last breath whether they are predestined or not. Your job is to pray for them, share the gospel, and hope. Amen? Amen.